Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod to the People. On this episode, instead of the news, I talked to Liz Winstead about creating The Daily Show and founding Lady Parts Justice League, an organization that uses humor to educate people about reproductive health care and abortion policies. Then I'm joined by Emily Hunt-Turner, Tommy Franklin, and Rosalind Pedersine to discuss All Square, which is a nonprofit that provides professional development training to formerly incarcerated individuals. And before we get started, I want to remind you that Pod to the People is going on tour with Kicking Out by Tour during Black History Month with stops in D.C., Philly, and New York. They will be heading to the West Coast in March for shows in Portland, Seattle, and San Francisco. Go to cricket.com slash events to get tickets now and follow us on Twitter for announcements about guests. We're at Pod Save the People. That's people spelled P-P-L. Also, Pod Save America and Love to Leave it just announced their tours as well, so you can get tickets to those shows at cricket.com slash events too. Come hang with us. It'll be great. You know, before we jump into this episode, what's on my heart this week is about building community. That a key part about building community is creating authentic relationships, relationships that don't center you, but center the work, and that center a shared set of values and beliefs. And there are a lot of people who think that they're creating community when they're really just creating relationships that center themselves as the beacon of power. And like, if we're going to transform a system, we need to build authentic relationships that are rooted in a shared sense of purpose and a shared sense of possibility. So my challenge to you is, as we think about 2019, think about how you are being a part of a community and helping to build a community rooted in authentic relationships and not relationships that just center one or two people. And now my conversation with Liz Winstead, co-creator of The Daily Show and founder of Lady Parch Justice League, an organization that uses humor to educate people about reproductive health care and abortion policies. Liz, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod to the People. Thanks for having me. A lot of questions, a lot of things to talk about. I know that you are the founder and chief creative officer of Lady Parch Justice League. Yes. Uh, but you formerly had an instrumental role in the creation of The Daily Show. I did. I was the co-creator of The Daily Show and the first head writer for a couple of years. What drew you to comedy? It's interesting. I'm the youngest of five kids in my family. So part of it was simply if I could complete a sentence or be heard and taken seriously someplace, I would like to do that. And somebody dared me in college to do stand-up. Like I just did it on a dare. And I was like, I didn't even know somebody like me could do that because when I saw women doing stand-up back in the bad old days, it was like, you know, old-timey comedians like Phyllis Diller or, you know, Joan Rivers, who, like, talked about how much they hated themselves and hated their husbands. I'm like, well, I don't have a husband, and I don't necessarily hate myself, but I do hate society. Can I talk about that? And then I saw George Carlin, and I did it. And um, sort of everything changed from that point. I was going to be a history teacher. A history teacher? Yeah, yeah. Um, did you have a history teacher that changed your life? Like, is that, like, why you want to be a history teacher? No. I had a father who fought in World War II and was in the 1st Marine Division of Guadalcanal and never talked about it. And I wanted to crack open some sort of where that pain came from. And I thought if I study history and learn about his experience, I might be able to have that conversation with him. And I didn't really get to because of my education. But interestingly enough, as people get older and 
they want their legacy to be told on some way, he started opening up. And when he did, I could ask questions that validated him because it was fascinating. You know, he was like a staunch Reagan Republican. I lived in Minnesota where I was like, you are the devil. My dad is the devil. But, you know, my activism really started with the first Gulf War. That's when I really got completely hooked in and decided to change my whole life, my comedy and everything. And I remember fighting with him and him saying, you don't know what it's like to be sent to die with weapons they know won't protect you. And I was like, but that's why I protest wars, because I don't want you to be, and the men that are living now and the women living now, to be sent to war ever. But to hear that rawness, it gave me more compassion than I ever thought I would have. But it also made me think, you know, if these men who fought in World War II ill-equipped think that we haven't built a war machine that's going to protect people, if they can't see that at all and they're blinded and their pain is taking over everything, they need to go. Did I answer your question? Hmm. I'm also interested, (laughs) too, um, in how you've seen comedy change over the years. That there is, you know, you think about Kevin Hart with the Oscars, you think about so many things that if they were produced in this moment, it'd be unacceptable. Frankly, it's just unacceptable. Like, there's no way people would be able to do these routines or, like, this wouldn't be on a show. Like, it just... uh, How have you seen it change? And, like, what do you think the artist's, the comedian's responsibility in this moment is with regard to, like, the, the topics that are in the public conversation? I feel a number of ways about it. I feel like either have a lane or don't have a lane because what's happening right now is really important. And if you want to use your comedy to really talk about what's happening in the world with so much at stake for so many people, especially vulnerable people, be smart about it, write about it, and be dedicated to writing material that actually says something and gives people some hope and lays out hypocrisy. Um, If you dabble in it, you don't do anything interesting normally. It's really superficial normally, talking about what someone looks like, talking about just stuff that happened yesterday when historically talking about a lot of stuff and bringing it up can be great. It's always fascinating to me because whenever these things come up about people who have stepped in it in the past, stepped in it now, the defenders in comedy are always people who somehow think they are given some glorious pass and that we are all supposed to understand their intention and that if it offended, I didn't mean to, or it was a long time. It's like, you know what? Here's what's edgy about comedy. You make decisions to say things on stage. And part of what makes you interesting is if you walk up to a line, everybody gets to judge it. Like you make decisions about what comes out of your mouth. The second it passes through your lips, everybody else gets to have a say in it. You don't get a pass. And so I often say, say whatever you want, but please expect that people are going to have feelings about it. So understand why you're saying it. Um, Why Lady Parts Justice League? As an organization, as a concept, as a name, as a what? Why why all of it? All of it. Why is this like you're the way you show up in the world and work? I think through my history of doing activism using comedy, um, you know, it started out with my stand-up and then The Daily Show and then, you know, Air America Radio, when we would pick topics or I was doing shows, uh, there was a couple of things. No one ever suggested that we should be focusing on 
reproductive rights, abortion, and the autonomy of more than 50% of the people when it is like in the number top five things of oppressive legislation and oppressive mindsets that are in our nation. Just doesn't didn't occur to people. Didn't occur to people that reproductive rights are human rights. There was no centering of it in a real way. Uh, I heard allies constantly, like allies and comrades and people who were elected saying things like, but you know, that should be where we could find some common ground. Can't we compromise on abortion? Why do you focus on abortion? And it's a wedge issue. And I just thought, somebody literally legislating what happens inside of your body is not a wedge issue. It is a, it's, a, it's a human rights crisis. And so I myself have had abortions. It's given me a path of self-determination that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And so I wanted to normalize the conversation, center the conversation, and then just create an organization where all of the people that are mostly affected by it are part of creating that conversation. So women of color, trans folks, queer people, old cis ladies. Where did the name come from and what does the organization do? I was watching these laws happen and I had started this mini tour by myself of just going and doing fundraisers for clinics in a van with my dogs. I was a crazy person. <laughs> so How many dogs? I had two at the time. Okay. Two old rescues driving around in a van. It was a little sketch, but it was all well-intentioned. <laughs> so, And probably funny. It was fun. Yeah. You know, I raised a bunch of money for Planned Parenthood and independent clinics, and it was great. And my first stop on the tour was Michigan, and I'd become friends with a Michigan legislator named Lisa Brown, who at the time was fighting. There was a rash of forced transvaginal ultrasound bills happening all around the country, where if you wanted an abortion, the state mandated that unnecessary transvaginal ultrasound needed to happen to you. It's basically state rape. Tell me one second. A, a transvaginal ultrasound, is that different than a regular ultrasound that I've yes. seen in a movie? So a regular ultrasound is when they goo up your belly, and then they look to see the fetus. And then they can tell some stuff about it. But a transvaginal ultrasound is a wand that looks like a vibrator that they transvaginally put into your vagina so they can look a little deeper. And so many states were trying to create these violating unnecessary laws that would force that if you wanted to terminate your pregnancy. Why would they want that over? Like, what's the benefit of that over a regular ultrasound to them? It's more shaming. Like, honestly, so it's more wild. shaming. And and the other thing about it is um, with these bans that are happening now, if you've seen Ohio and other states are trying to pass these uh, six-week abortion bans when people don't even know they're pregnant at six weeks. Explain a six-week abortion ban just so people understand it. So there's many states um, that are trying to figure out a way to overturn Roe v. Wade. And one of the ways is they're trying to take the legal gestational age of a pregnancy to six weeks, which... Federal law, Roe v. Wade, says at 24 weeks in America, you can have an abortion. So states are trying to – it's completely unconstitutional. It's a waste of money. And why six weeks matter? Why does that matter as a a defining time period? For the right, it is completely arbitrary. It is a way to make it impossible to get an abortion because people don't often know they're pregnant at six weeks. And the only way you can find out if you are pregnant at six weeks – is with a transvaginal ultrasound. Oh, shut up. Okay. Yes. Okay. So it's a way okay. to, yeah, slip in literally wow. and figuratively all kinds of shame and oppression. Wow. Yeah. So you can't go to the dollar store and get like a little Not pregnancy six test. Weeks. No. Wow. Yeah. So back to Lisa Brown in Michigan fighting against one of these transvaginal ultrasound bills. And she kept saying, vagina, 
because it's about vaginas. And the Speaker of the State House of Michigan banned her from the floor of the Michigan State House for saying the word vagina. And when she said, what would you like me to say when talking about a transvaginal ultrasound bill? He said, something more acceptable like lady parts. And I was so offended that A, it was gendered, and B, that this person couldn't hear the word vagina, but felt completely <laughs> entitled to legislate it. Right, right. Um, Lady Parts Justice League was born. And what so, year was that? That was... Um, what year was the Lady Parts comment? The Lady Parts comment was around 2012, I want to say. So our intention, honoring Lisa Brown, talking about it, and you know, knowing our team is inclusive, knowing our team is diverse, you know, we kept getting folks saying, you know, it's gendered, you know, there's men that have a, a vaginas and they're not ladies and it's offensive and there's trans women that don't have vaginas and don't have uteruses and it's offensive. And I was like, but here's the story. And they're like, okay, cool. And then I was like, you want to know what? My intentions don't matter. If I'm working for the reproductive rights of all people, we need to figure out how to come up with a name that feels more inclusive and still stays in your face and accessible. So we're changing our name in 2019. Ooh, is yeah. this a, do we know what it is? Or? We don't know what it is yet. We're, we're having all kinds of people help us out and weigh in. But I feel really excited. You know, you can do all the work in the world. But if you have a name that people would like to learn more or not learn more, that's blocking people from doing so, change it. As someone who is so deep in the work of reproductive health and rights, have you learned anything about the other side that you like that you didn't know, you know, five, ten years ago? I think what I learned about the other side is in making change, and we travel a lot. We're on the road, you know, four four months out of the year for sure, I can say, in places that are hard hit with places that have protesters outside constantly. And there's different approaches to the anti-abortion movement. All of them have the same extreme agenda, but their veneers can seem very different. You know, the nuns who are outside of a clinic who are praying still have the same oppressive agenda as a white dude who is screaming with a sign outside, right? And so for me, what I think I've learned the most is that they have so much money. And when you see those bloody fetus signs and you see those big off-putting protest signs, it's a way to almost prevent intersectionality because those people are so gross that I think a lot of folks will say, I don't want to screw with those people. It's insane. And what I've learned about them in listening to their protests is they start out with abortion for about two minutes. Then they launch into homophobia, transphobia, anti-immigrant sentiment, all kinds of things. Abortion's the entryway. And so, you know, for us, it's like if we could get folks who are in their, their major focus of activism is in these different areas to really understand who these people are, they would see how they're in cahoots. I just thought they were solely focused on abortion. Mm. And so when I learned that that the intersections of hate know no bounds, you know, right. they're all there. Right. But to really hear them in action, and we went to a protest where there was 500 of them and about nine of us. Hmm. And the second they saw us coming, they shifted their conversation and their megaphoning from save the babies to 
what husband would let you out of the house, you were ugly lesbians. And it was like unbelievable to hear them be so jarred by women and queer folks who just decided to confront what they were saying. And this was leadership. This wasn't like their rogue activists who joined them. This right. was the leaders. This wasn't like some random person walking down the street no. who joined the protest. No. Uh, what What would you say are some of the biggest misconceptions about the people on our side? Oh, gosh, there's so many. I think I would answer that question in two ways. One, something that we need to work on on our side, if I might answer it that way, is how we are constantly finding caveats to defend abortion and to defend abortion access. When people say, I'm not pro-abortion, I'm pro-choice. When people say, at least we should have abortion for rape and incest. Um, What that does is shame people who've chosen to have abortion to better their lives, to better their families. Um, You're saying we shouldn't say pro-choice? I think, no, what I'm saying is we shouldn't say, um, I'm pro-choice, I'm not pro-abortion. Okay. It puts abortion in a light that says it's negative. It makes the physicians and the people that provide it feel like they're providing a service that's unsupported, that's necessary for all the wrong reasons. Um, I think that we could learn to think about how we actually feel about it for our own selves, learn about how independent providers provide about 65 to 70 percent of all the abortions in our country. And when it comes to later abortions that happen in the second trimester, it's around 90 percent. We know Planned Parenthood, but we don't know about the mom and pop clinics that are in communities that are less supported just because they're not as well known as Planned Parenthood. And I think that's an important thing to know. You know, one of the things that I learned, we were doing the news on a different episode. I just like hadn't thought about that there are states where there's only one place to get an abortion. Like yeah. I just like that was so wild to me. Yeah. And I was like, that is nuts. Yeah, there's seven states. It's nuts. It's nuts. And what's nuts is of those seven states, six of them are independent providers. So they really? are yeah. So it's basically saying we have a state that has one grocery store and that grocery store is not like Whole Foods. That right. grocery store is a co op. Right. And so they're like scrappy and amazing. And the activists in these places are so badass because they're like escorting at the clinics, trying to unionize some local hotel, like being part of the Black Lives Matter movement. They're like all over the place. And so what we do at Lady Parts Justice League is we see them. And it's like if we can go down and do a comedy show in Jackson, Mississippi, or Little Rock, or anywhere in Missouri, um, (laughs) and we can get four or 500 people in a room and then have the providers and the activists come on stage and tell their community what they need, then those people sign up to help grow their activist spaces. It's much easier than 10 people who are just doing kick-ass work trying to get more people to come. So what we do is just provide this conduit of fun and then let them do the talking to their own community. In the course of the past two years, I think we've had over a thousand people sign up to be activists in all these places, and they didn't know. Can we talk about escorting people in? I, I like, have heard people talk about it. Like, I, I've heard that it's, like, a thing, but I've never, I don't know anybody who's ever seen it or done it. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen it or done it. I have done both. I started escorting in the battle yeah, people days. have no clue what it is, like, can you just help yes. flesh it out? So, uh, clinic escorts are volunteers who started really in the early 1980s. And it started because there was no law that protected clinics from anti-abortion extremists to 
chain themselves to the front door of a clinic, get right up to the patient until the FACE Act happened. And so when I started escorting in the 80s... Explain the FACE Act. So the FACE Act is freedom of access to clinic entrances. And what that means is there has to be some sort of legal boundary between protesters and access for a patient to access the clinic door safely. Got it. So before that, when we started being escorts, one of the things that would happen is the protesters would have their signs and we would lock arms. And at the bottom of their signs, they would have a tiny nail. And they would they would walk by our legs. I have scar on the side of my legs. They would walk by our legs with that nail. And then somebody would scrap a nail down your legs. And you'd break, you'd break arms. And then they would subvert you out and then chain themselves to the clinic. So when we talk about, like, clinic violence... It's those kind of stories that you don't hear from the bad old days. So now there's laws that prevent them from having that. But the thing that's sort of interesting about escorting in general is it's a point of privilege to be able to take a day off of work, to be able to escort people into clinics, who's got extra time and is rich enough to do that. So oftentimes there's a disparity of who the patient is versus who the escort is, and does that feel safe to the patient? So we are trying to work at Lady Parts Justice League to come up with programs where we can get people paid to be escorts so that if you're a poor person, a black and brown person, and you're going in to have an abortion, you can see somebody that looks like you walking you in. Because let's be honest, like the trust factor between a woman who looks like me and a young woman of color or a young person of color coming into abortion, that has not historically been there. So if you have somebody walking from their car and they see a bunch of creepy white dudes yelling at them and then a white woman is saying, come with me, it's going to be safe, what does that feel like? You know, like that's the kind of stuff we want to change. How have you seen comedy be effective in like helping people enter into these conversations? You know... Comedy can do one of two things. If done well, it can lay out some historical patterns in a way that's acceptable to people who are not necessarily looking for how did we get here. It can be a defender of people who get marginalized all the time. You know, exposing hypocrisy can get people rallied up and excited. You know, part of the reason I got so frustrated being in commercial television and radio was I could get people riled up with like the facts and through humor but then I couldn't give them a call to action because the networks were like that's not your job your job is to be funny and if you want to lay out some information we'll let you as long as you're funny and then I just be I feel like I was an anger fluffer you know it's just like getting people mad so I think that if you're going to decide to use comedy as a tool for social change you have to be able to find a way to have that and here's what you can do component Otherwise, you're just kind of a messenger that leaves people hanging. And make sure those calls to action are executable. And when you travel across the country, what is something that you hear often from people? And I ask because I travel a lot, and you know, I'm always struck by being in rooms and people ask some of the same things about the police that I just like didn't 
because I do this work so much, I'm like, I'm, I'm sort of surprised that you, that like this swath of people is asking me, like, should we say that the police didn't kill anybody? That like people on our side are like, are you, is that what you're saying, Dre? And like, I'm always interested in like those things and I'm right. not as close to this part of the work as you are. So I'd love to know, like, what are some of the themes of things that you hear when you travel? I think it's always surprising to me that people who are activists and care, you know, if you come to a Lady Parts Justice League comedy show, you know something and you care, that they don't really understand the assault on reproductive care, that they don't understand that when it comes to whether it's our issue, reproductive rights, policing, voting rights, that it's state legislatures that have such a crucial role and almost all the role in what that means. I think that they don't understand that if you work at a clinic that provides abortion, and this can be in Memphis or it can be in Portland, you can't get somebody to come and do your lawn because you provide abortion. You have to drive home from work a different route every day because you're being followed. Uh, if you're a doctor that decides to provide abortion, everyone will tell you there's been some point in their lives where anti-abortion extremists have sent out mailers to all their neighbors to say a murderer lives in your Stop neighborhood it. at this address. Yeah. Wow. Uh-huh. When you work at a clinic, sometimes you don't share that with your family because of the stigma. So oftentimes your only community is the people that you work with. And so when we go out on the road, part of what's really cool is to have the clinic and the activists tell the audience what they need. And that can be, we want to pay somebody on contract to be our landscaper. And I remember this guy in the audience once said, wait a minute, are you telling me that as a landscaper, I can get a new client and get paid and that's activism? And I said, yes, that is what I'm telling you. And that means that you are saying to this clinic, I am going to do your lawn care. I'm going to proudly have my van be in front of your clinic to say that I support these people here. And that's crucial. You know, to have a community of people that you can contact to say, we have a city council meeting Tuesday night. Can you help us gather people to get there to stand with us? That they have so little support and that they feel really isolated was something that was incredibly heartbreaking to learn, made perfect sense, and made the audience who sat in that room, as people said to me often, I need to stand with them and stay with them to protect them, to keep them open. Are there places that we should be focusing on as like hotbeds? Um, everywhere but Oregon is a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. go Ducks, go Ducks. I'm Oregon's super, good. I'm super proud of Oregon. You know, healthcare, everything, you know, right to die. They're just amazing on every front. I would say every state has serious problems in their state legislatures when it comes to access to abortion. I would say there is some good news. You know, the state of New York, for example, this is going to surprise a lot of people. They have not passed a proactive abortion law since 1970, before Roe v. Wade, and right now in the state of New York, abortion is in the criminal code, which means that if you're a physician that were to provide abortion care, and like any doctor, if for some reason something went wrong, you could go to jail. And so even though abortion is accessible and legal up to 24 weeks in the state of New York, people won't perform them because hospitals won't cover insurance-wise providers who would need to do that. And so people leave state, go out of state. So there are states that are, I would say West Virginia is a state to look out for. They have one clinic. 
They also have people who are living in mountainous regions, rural regions, and it's really hard to, for them to access anything. They just pass a law that Medicaid can't fund anything. Their abortion fund needs to help these poor people to the tune of $750,000, and they have about 10000 in their fund. So if you just go to West Virginia Free, they're a great organization, and you can find out where to donate. It feels pretty scary everywhere, which is why it's not just an election year situation. For us, it's as folks are on the ground working to get legislators who are more pro-choice and proactive in making sure that people have access to that, the people providing the care as clinics close, as patients come from other states where it's more accessible, to provide aid and comfort and moral support to them and to bring community to them to actually try to help create programs so that folks can be constantly checking in with their emotional support. It's really important. You know, it's a, it's a two-pronged thing constantly. And one of the things that I ask everybody is, what do you say to the people who have marched, they've emailed, they've protested, they've made the phone calls, they've testified, and the outcomes haven't changed? What do you say to those people who are losing hope in moments like this? What I say to folks is, you have to keep doing all those things, but I think also, wherever your activism lies, make sure that you are working with the folks who are affected the most because a lot of times there's these like blanket things that we can do but I think that when you go in like I often say my primary focus is abortion rights when I do secondary activism work with my extra time it's really about like can I be the pack mule in what you're doing? You have these great ideas you need stuff forward. Do you need somebody to set up chairs? Do you need somebody to get the coffee? I say Look at people who have great ideas and who are moving forward and who you can see, like all activist groups, don't have enough people to take the the heavy lifting off their plate so they can focus on the strategic plan. That's a really helpful thing to do, to say, I'm willing to roll up my sleeves and clean up and bring food and do for you so that your brilliant mind can be activating people. And what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? piece of advice that I have gotten over the years that stuck with me is don't be afraid to make a mistake to try to make change. Think of the times that you've fallen down in front of people and you felt horrified in that moment. Ten minutes later, you forgot it ever happened and so did everybody else. So don't let your fear or your embarrassment of failure stop you because we all do it. Also, somebody said to me once, you matter, act like it. And I think that's important. And where can people go to stay attuned to what's next with you? They can go to look at all of our work. Go to LadyPartsJusticeLeague.com. Um, if you want to find me, the best place is I promise to pollute your feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm at Liz Winstead. I spell my name with two Zs. Also, we have a podcast called um, The Feminist Sleeper Cell, which is a weekly podcast that gives all the weekly updates on what's happening in the news around reproductive rights. And it's important because with every legislature around the country trying to propose laws, 0.2% of our media did any stories about it last year. So it's a good source to find out all things abortion-related, reproductive rights, access-related, and it's fun and funny. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on Potsy of the People. We consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Thank you so much. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come.
In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash Dunkin' Cold Coffee can be brewed at home in your Keurig coffee maker with Dunkin' Cold K-Cup Pods. Just brew it hot over ice and enjoy flavor that's crafted to serve cold. The home with Dunkin' is where you want to be. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends... Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Pot Save America is brought to you by Helix. If you're looking for better sleep, you need to upgrade your mattress with Helix. The Helix lineup offers 20 unique mattresses, including the award-winning Lux Collection, the newly released and high-end Helix Elite Collection, mm. a mattress designed for big and tall sleepers, and even a mattress made just for kids, which Charlie has. Charlie has a Helix mattress now, just for kids, in his uh, race car bed. Very nice. excited, very happy about it. Take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes, and uh, it ships straight to your door free of charge. They even offer a 100-night trial and a 10- to 15-year warranty to try out your new Helix mattress. If you're a side sleeper, you can choose a model with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief. There are also models with more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions. Plus, check out enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating while you sleep. It's no wonder Helix has over 12,000 five-star reviews. And you, you've loved your Helix mattress. I love I got a Don Lux. There you go. And there it's you go. great. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. 
Go to helixsleep.com slash crooked. That's helixsleep.com slash crooked. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Here's a conversation with Emily Hunt-Turner, Tommy Franklin, and Rosalind Pedrosine, whose organization, All Square, provides professional development training to formerly incarcerated individuals. Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Hey, hey. Hey. Thanks for having us. Can we start with the overall program design? So the restaurant, the institute, can you just give us like the quick and dirty of like what it is from a program perspective? Yeah, so All Square is a civil rights social enterprise in Minneapolis-St. Paul, and we're centered on two things, really. One is the grilled cheese restaurant. So we serve craft grilled cheese, and we have folks who have been impacted by the criminal justice system uh, working 30 hours a week at a living wage in the restaurant. But more importantly, we also have simultaneously a, an institute. So fellows who travel through the program are, yes, working at the restaurant, but also going through a 12-month curriculum. Uh, and the two tracks that we're hitting hard on are law and entrepreneurship. And for us, you know, the institute was a way to really uh, extend this thing much beyond sort of a second chances cafe, which we get pitched as a lot. But I think for us, this is a way to really make sure that we're looking at careers beyond just jobs uh, for those who have been impacted by the system and, and frankly, real, you know, real paychecks and real pipelines to prosperity. There we go. And for people who are new to All Square, can you just explain why it's called All Square? Where did it come from? And what made you think this was like the way to make an impact? Yeah. So the name All Square uh, says something pretty important to us. It definitely is a little bit of a double entendre in that it refers to our square or square-ish grilled cheese. Um, But it also, you know, I think we all felt collectively that in doing the social enterprise, we wanted our, our name and our brand to say something important. And so the name All Square refers to the notion that once you have paid your debts to society, you are all square. So two things. One is why grilled cheese. And then when you say you think about this as different from a second chance cafe, for instance, what is the difference? Well, I think as a social enterprise, right, I think that working in the restaurant is critically important. Uh, And I think we've talked a lot about making sure, right, money matters, making money matters. Uh, And we're super proud that our enterprise has a sort of a revenue generator and a way to put money in people's pockets. But there's a really great trend. This is not to speak down on Second Chances cafes. I think they're great. We really wanted to take it a step beyond that and make sure that, you know, we we're investing in the minds and ultimately the careers of those who have been impacted. So in some ways, right, Second Chances Cafe and first that first chances were available and or that mistakes were even had in the first place. And I think we all here collectively know how flawed the criminal justice system is, how often it gets it wrong. There's just so many nuances and Second Chances Cafe sort of forecloses the conversation and makes assumptions that aren't accurate. And Tommy, what about your role as the director of operations and how did you get to All Square? Yeah, so from the beginning, um, I had been organizing primarily around criminal justice and a lot of other social justice issues, you know, fighting in those ways. I'm directly impacted. I served a few years in prison. Six years after I was released from prison, I found out I was born in prison. So there's just all these ways that I'm impacted and some of my family members But I met Emily along the way, so I joined the board of directors, and um, we launched in September, and very recently, I stepped down from the board to become director of operations because, you know, one thing that's very important to me is feeling like I'm home, feeling like I have an equal shot. 
I've lived outside of this country as an immigrant and have held leases in other countries where here in the States I can't get a lease for an apartment because of my criminal record. So All Square just seemed like an opportunity to get more connected with those who are directly impacted and those who are doing good work in the arena. And, uh, you know, director of operations, general manager of a restaurant, all these terms. For me, it's just it's so much bigger than inventory or programming. We've got an awesome team. There's just a connection there that's so organic and that I couldn't turn my back on in terms of wanting to be around physically in the restaurant at the Institute as much as possible. And as a board member, it's possible because it has been all hands on deck as a startup. But I've really found a lot of meeting and being uh, day to day involved in the process and uh, growing along with everybody. And why grilled cheese? And do you have many people eat grilled cheese sandwiches? Like, <laughs> oh man, <laughs> I'm from Wisconsin, so I can say absolutely yes. People eat grilled cheese and love grilled cheese. <laughs> it's a comfort food, and it's something that many of us grew up on. It's simple, it's accessible, um, and in simplest form, bread, cheese, butter. And it's more complex form like we have. You got jerk chicken, you got Punch prosciutto, you got all this good stuff on there. Um, pulled but it, pork. Pulled pork. It's a really great way to just bring people together and have a good meal that can feel a little nostalgic, that's comforting, that's filling, and in a really safe and welcoming environment. And, you know, so our fellows have created two of the 11 sandwiches. They've designed them themselves. We've held Iron Kitchen battles, and and the winners got to feature their sandwiches on the menu. It's a really inclusive process in uh, designing through the whole team. From a business aspect, this is something that's really meaningful and that you can design an actual menu item, have it placed. We can track the sales. We can track how popular it is, things like that. And so when our fellows are going through, the, particularly those who are focused on entrepreneurship, this is very tangible things that they can put on in their portfolio, on their resume to say, not only did I work in this organization and I've gained these skills, here's actually what I've done from a business standpoint and me being a legitimate business person myself. And what is the program capacity and how is it funded? Like, is the goal to make a lot of money with the restaurant too and just reinvest that in the institute? Like, how does that work and how long can fellows stay in the program? So right now we have cohorts of 12 to 14 fellows. So it's 12 months and essentially the first six months, they are restaurant centric and that is 30 hours a week there, but they're also in the institute. It's all coursework, right? Every Monday we're splitting the afternoon and morning shifts between law and entrepreneurship. We're working with Neighborhood Development Center on the entrepreneurship side of things and Mitchell Hamlin Law School on the legal side of things. So the first six months is really meant to absorb. Uh, We're also doing sort of like a business 360 where we're walking through the operations of the restaurant biweekly with everyone so they understand how this thing works, how it breathes, the money that it makes. And the second six months is action, you know, putting action behind it and uh, working with other local organizations or school program, whatever it might be, on pursuing higher education. We have a fellow, two fellows studying for the LSAT, one fellow applying for a paralegal associates. And those that want to start their own small business, the second six months, right, is is really focused on now that they have a business plan and they have a logo and they've got their concept sort of finalized, how do we help them actually mobilize it? How do we work collectively together and leverage our social capital as a, a local organization to you know, make it happen? 
And then in addition to that, fellows also will execute their capstone. And so that can be anything from a community service project to, you know, executing something very particular about their business idea, but something to kind of give back and connect the fellows to not just the work they've done for themselves, but to the greater community as well, either pursuing an internship, something very direct and related to what they're doing, but also promotions within the restaurant. So in our second six months, fellows will be interviewing and applying for promotions in terms of management, shift managers. We're looking at some avenues to potentially expand outside of our four walls of all square. So some opportunities to lead outside of the restaurant as well. So all of that is being built in the leadership piece of the Institute as well as the community piece of the Institute. And then post-graduation, our alumni programs to ensure that our fellows continue to stay connected with us and each other and then mentor the groups that will come after. Each of you had had some proximity to this work way before All Square. What have you learned in the process of running All Square? I've learned, you know, the fight is long and hard. Um, I've seen institutions that have been around for a long time, and I've seen a lot of people triumph, go through the tribulations, burn out. What I'm always looking for beyond ingenuity and, you know, the honest dialogues that take place to help develop leaders and impact uh, the community is a certain boldness, you know? I mean, if you think about the restaurant industry, it's... It's a brutal industry for for anyone. You take being formally incarcerated out of it, you have some people's heroes like Bourdain. The aspects of the industry ate him up. I'm learning that um, it's really an everyday challenge to balance out the work that is a business because it's a business model that, you know, you got customers coming in the door every day. It's about focusing on, especially as leadership, that we maintain the narrative of what we're about because there's a lot that happens behind the scenes. And, you know, I'm going to be honest, it irks me and it irks the fellows, the staff working in the kitchen when people come in and they're like, that's good what you guys are doing here. It's good, like good for you. It's like they're patting us on the back by buying a grilled cheese. And uh, it's so much bigger than that. When we see the lights opening up in the faces of the fellows who were all skeptical on day one, right, they just acknowledged the fact that I would see them because I'm in their shoes. And uh, we just got to continue this conversation in a way that uh, honors how we came to uh, arrive at the experience we're having day to day in All Square. You know, I would say for me, acknowledging just a, a reality thing, I've spent time working in the reentry sort of zone and spent a lot of time in criminal justice reform generally. But the reality is that I haven't been to prison. I'm not impacted. I am a white woman. I do operate in this world with a lot of privilege, certainly as a white lawyer as well. And, you know, something I've learned, Ray, is just how rare it is those who have been impacted are asked, like, let alone what, it, what are your dreams, but what excites you? What are your passions? What are you curious about? You know, for me, again, just sort of it, it's it's really helped me acknowledge and, and understand and own my own sort of privilege and fortune and, and being asked that my whole life. Right. Like, what do you care about? What do you love? What do you want to do? What are your dreams? I think it's it's been really powerful to 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 work through this with all of our fellows. But I think the reality is we had to really establish trust before those dreams were opened up to us. And I think that that is fair. That for me has been really powerful. And, you know, the only other thing I would say that's that I would say I'm learning but also has been confirmed is that as a lawyer, when you've lived the system from the inside out, it's almost comical just how little those of us who haven't lived the system know about it and how much value 
those who have lived the system can bring to the legal field generally. So for me, it's incredibly exciting. I don't care how long it takes, how much work it takes to create this sort of prison to law pipeline, um, because I think having aspiring lawyers and paralegals and, and advocates come through our doors, I just think it's one of the most beautiful and organic ways to reform the system that just doesn't get talked about. And DeRay, you know, the thing that breaks my heart was while incarcerated, I would kind of keep my head down and do what I had to do. And the other folks who were in and out of prison, when stuff was going down or fights were going down, like people would knock on my cell and be like, yo, don't go to the gym today. It's going down. And I'm like, why are these cats looking out for me? They don't know me necessarily from the street. And one guy came up to me and he said, look, man, I know I'm coming back, but you, you're not coming back. So that's why we look out for you. And that broke my heart because... A lot of times, you know, when good programs are happening or things like Oscar, people see it as the exception. And my dream is for it to be not the exception because it really breaks my heart that we have to um, go all the way outside the box. And I love going outside the box. Believe me. If you had a magic wand and could change one thing about the system, what would it be? Most simplest answer for me is I don't know my mother because I was born in federal prison. So not a single woman should be incarcerated while they're pregnant and hopefully no mothers. That's that's the beginning for me. Expunging every record, being all square, what does it mean to actually have served your time and then genuinely be able to move forward? Right now, it is stated that way, but it is not in application happening that way. So I think for me, it would be sealing and expunging records from the get-go. I don't know how anyone moves beyond their record if it's constantly going to haunt them, regardless of what that record is. I just wish there was a way to sort of not let that stigma define so much of their future. You know, just the disparity in who's there and why some of us are there and why some of us aren't. You know, and I think that's that's not just the criminal justice system. That's all systems in this country and beyond our country. But I think particularly looking at the disparity and, and collateral consequences. So the trickle down of that just snowballs, um, particularly for communities of color, women, for me, I think it would be, you know, if I could have a magic wand and could change anything, that would probably be a starting point. Well, and you could start there, too, with prosecutorial discretion, right? Mm-hmm. So much of the system and how it gets applied every day. I'm not anti-prosecutors, but I am being real about <laughs> how discretion plays out in real life. One of the things I ask most of the activists and organizers that I talk to is like, what do you tell people who are losing hope in this moment, who are like, you know, they protested, they went to the meeting, they called, they emailed, and things don't seem to be changing. What do you say to those people? Keep pushing and look for community. There's, I think, so many of us nowadays, particularly with social media, it's so easy for us to isolate ourselves and to kind of get wound up online, but then not see our energy activated in real life or just not having those connections. And so, you know, for me... Looking for those people, those in those spaces where you can be active, even in a in a small scale. One quick thing is just making sure we're putting forward the efforts to learn where we come from in our history, as a people, wherever you, whoever your ancestors might be, and even learning from whatever mistakes are made along the way in activism, organizing. But my biggest thing is like, take a break, step back, don't hide from your community or your people necessarily for the long haul, but. You know, get out if you need to get out and then reassess your own passions, your own dreams. You know, just take a break and don't let anybody tell you when to get back up. A lot of folks who are incarcerated, they lose sight of whatever dreams they might have because the system is designed to, you know, stymie and hamper those dreams. So if we're all out here, if we happen to be free, 
um, <laughs> in our personal lives. Dreaming matters, and we want to reclaim our dreams as people who are impacted directly or otherwise. I think there's something really important about light. Uh, I hope that doesn't sound trite, but I think uh, especially as we all move into the winter season and, you know, when I say we, I mean myself included, you know, mental health is real. And I feel very strongly about uh, keeping yourself wherever the light is, right? And that's light in what you read and light in what you see, light in who you spend time with, people, places, spaces that, that have light. Keeping myself wherever the light is and around whoever the light is has been uh, super important. And the last question is a question we ask everybody is, uh, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Uh, well, this is easy because I got this advice like uh, <laughs> six months before I was locked up. I was 21 years old. Just playing basketball on a Saturday. And my buddy Terry, he was in his 30s. And I turned 21 that day. And he's like, you know, he, he said, happy birthday. He said, all I'm going to tell you is make your mistakes in your 20s. and uh we're gonna make mistakes till we die but the type of mistakes you make in your 20s you might want to rein those in by the time (laughs) you hit 30 because the catching up is harder to catch up so for all the young folks listening out there you make those mistakes y'all and learn from them and and celebrate that you're gonna grow that's a guarantee very true (laughs) for me growing up my grandfather always would always tell me um you can lie to everybody, but you can't lie to yourself. And so for me, that always stuck out because it's very easy these days to fall into groupthink, to, you know, let people tell you who you are, or who you can be or who you should be or what you're capable of. You know, we all have our own personal demons, things that are impacting us. And so that always, always stuck to me that your truth matters. Your truth is your truth for a reason and, and based on your lived experiences. And so always to honor and live your truth at all times, because no matter how hard we can run and run and run from it, your own personal thoughts and your own personal truth is going to catch up to you. I think one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten is that your habits define you. And I don't know that we get uh, a lot of say in what happens in the future, but we, we do get 100 percent say in, in our habits. And um for me, that's been a really uh, critical piece of trying to be my best self, you know, a good colleague, a good mentor, a good mentee, a good spouse. Um, it's trying to really be conscious of my habits and be aware of how much they really do at the end of the day, really define who I am. Cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on Party of the People. And I can't wait to hear how it's going in like a year or so. We appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. 
Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.